Hello, everybody. Sorry to keep you waiting. It's 4 a.m. here. And I have my coffee and I'm feeling good. And I'm very happy because I had a slight bit of an issue with some audio, but I have Mr. Peter Frampton here. Peter, hi. Welcome. Hi, fans. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, thanks for, for sticking in there with me, mate. We had a bit of an issue. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, your audio is not as good as it was before on the other, although you were getting a lot of um, feedback coming back at you. And I, I thank you so much for sticking in there with me, mate. Okay. Yeah. Peter, I was just saying as we were playing the intro music that I watched a rig rundown recently of uh, your behemoth rig, as you called it. <laughs> Are you still using that same rig? Um, well, when if I go out again, I'll be using it. Yeah. Hopefully, um, we'll be going to Europe. Uh, this this year now, at the end of the year, I think. Um, and yes, I would use that that behemoth. Um, <laughs> you haven't um, downscaled with modeling or anything like that. Oh, I have, but there's nothing like the real thing. I, I mean, it's not a modeling guy. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, my favorite. My favorite situation would be if I didn't have to have all the effects to make it sound like the various different tracks that people are used to hearing with the different effects and everything. That's why it's so big. Um, and it's got the real gear in there. It doesn't have plugins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, so, yeah, it's uh, one of those things where I would prefer to play through, um, you know, uh, little amps, um, and I do in the studio. But then, you know, I'd need... Uh, different settings and all this. Anyway, there's a difference between recording um, and or sitting in with somebody when you just bring an amp and a guitar, or if I'm doing my show, which I have to have the sounds that are on all the records. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering that, actually, as I was watching your rig rundown, whether when you're recording at home or in the studio, whether you just use a small amp and then use the big one to recreate all the different tones. Um, I, exactly. I was listening to your new record, um, and man, there is some beautiful tones on that. Beautiful tones. Oh, thank you. And your touch, more than anything, your touch on the guitar. Thank it, you. It really uh, reminded me. It reminded Brampton me forgets. of Hank Marvin. I got to say. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> there, there lies a, there, you've hit the nail on the head. You know. Uh, because he was, I guess, um, he was the first person, 1959, I was nine years, or probably eight, not even nine when I first heard Cliff and the Shadows play, and then I heard Apache, uh, the first single from the Shads, and that was it. That was it. That was, my life was set in stone at the rare old, rare young age of nine. Um, and uh, that's it. And and um, so I've always been, I came from that melodic sense. And even though I love blues and um, I love jazz, I love rock. And I, I kind of, I've got my own style that I put them all together, you know. Um, but it's, um, my playing is, it, it, I do like playing melodically and finding the note that will go through a whole slew of chord sequences. Um, and uh, so 
you know, it's if you can find the common uh, the common note that goes through a couple of couple of three chords. That's that's what I always look for. So it's the the chords change, but the note you can just wail on that note. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So when you first heard Apache, how did you go about learning the guitar after that at nine years old? Well, I had a, a I already had a, a, a cheap six string acoustic. Uh, they called it. It was called a plectrum guitar, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, so I had that. And and of course, it wasn't electric, so I had all the catalogs from Selmer's and uh, you know all these um, uh, Rose Morris who imported Stratocasts, Fenders and everything, up in London. And I saw that you could actually get a pickup, you know, and put it on the guitar. So I sent away for the pickup, put it on the guitar. And first of all, I just had the wire coming out the hole. Then I drilled a hole in the guitar and plugged it in just like like a regular guitar, um, electric guitar. And my dad, um, I said, Dad, I, I, we couldn't afford an amp. You know, it was hard enough getting the guitar. <laughs> and um, so my dad said, well, you know, the, the radio in the living room, he said, that's got an auxiliary input. He must have been pretty techy too. Yeah. So are you kidding me? So he said, it's two two holes. He said, and, and if I take two matchsticks and I take the other end of your guitar lead and I just get the wires, you know, take the plastic off, do that. And then we'll stick them in the two holes, and then you switch switch the radio to auxiliary. Voila, my first amp. <laughs> the only thing was, no one could listen to the radio while I was playing. So. <laughs> That's one up on my first amp. I grew up living in a caravan with my mum, and I used to hold the headstock of my guitar against the wall of this. Uh, aluminium annex, as they would call it, and the whole caravan would resonate, and that was my first amplifier. <laughs> I have a similar case, uh, not not as good as that um, resonance, but when I met Peter Green in 1960s, 970, in, in New York, we were at somebody's house, and he had his guitar, and I had my guitar, no amps. And so we found a chest of drawers, and pulled the drawers out and just rested our guitars on the wood and played that way. Yeah. And that was the same as you, but not when, quite as loud. When you've got to play, you, you'll find a way, huh? <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that was your first amp. How did you go about teaching yourself? Did you get lessons or was it something you started picking up by ear? Um, from... When I was uh, seven and a half, when I started playing the banjo-lele, the four string, then when I was eight, I got the guitar. And then four years of uh, just playing by ear, uh, it was evident at that point, my parents said, well, this is getting way too serious. (laughs) So I was becoming obsessed I was a junkie for the guitar. You know, I'd come in from school and I wouldn't even say, hello, mom, dad. I'd just go run upstairs, shut my, my bedroom door and and pick up my guitar and start listening to whatever to learn, you know. And so uh, they saw that I was obviously had a talent, a knack for this and picking it up 
by ear. So they said, well, I think maybe now's the time that you should go and get some theory. Um, you know, so they set me up with um, this uh, Spanish guitar, uh, classical guitar teacher, Susan Graham in Bromley, which is the, where I was born. And um, uh, I went and learned classical guitar for about, I don't know, two, three years. Uh, wasn't my idea. Um, <laughs> um, I was much, much preferred to be playing some ventures or, 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 um, or shadows. Yeah. But uh, I realized afterwards that it showed me the rudiments and what notes are what on what, what frets, you know. It was a, a very good way of force feeding me, <laughs> um, you know, to learn my instrument, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's something I, I fumbled around not knowing the notes for so long and just playing by ear. But, you know, you, that, I kind of wish in hindsight that I did learn a lot earlier like, like you did. Yeah. So yeah, I, I still am playing, but it's okay. <laughs> you know, I think the guys who, who have the nicest feel are the guys who aren't thinking mathematics when they're playing, if that makes sense. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, there's certain guitar players, and they are phenomenal. I could go on naming them, but you know, or these great technicians that they they put as much many runs and and backwards and forwards and up and down and sideways and bends and everything in in a solo as they can. Um, but it, it leaves me cold sometimes, you yeah. know. It's just I would much prefer, as Les Paul said, you know, the guy, he said, the guy that comes in with, with the, you know, 30,000 notes, he said, you can kill him by playing one note, but yep. it's the correct at the right time over the right chord. Mm -hmm. And and that beats, it's it's like, not to use a horrible word, but that trumps the guy with 30,000 notes. So, um, but you know, it, there's, it's, there's different reasons for playing, I think. My, my reason for playing was that when I feel I, um, I'm inhabiting the guitar, its feelings are coming out. It's not like, okay, well, let me do this run here and let me do this run here. Hopefully, I've done my homework, um, and I still do learning. I still learn licks from other people, and I still practice. Obviously, every day, but but I don't I, I don't set about to. I never worked out a guitar solo in my life. Oh, really? I mean, you know, no, never. Uh, maybe maybe one with when it's two guitar players, you have to work it out together. Steve and I in Humble Pie worked out. For Big Black Dog, um, Glenn Johns, the engineer producer, said, you should, why don't we, instead of Peter doing an ad-lib solo, why don't the two of you work out a solo and play in, you know, together? And I, but I really enjoyed that. That was purpose, purposeful for that song, you know. Um, but, uh, and I would do that again, if need be, you know, um, and have done. But, but um, basically... I never play the same thing. I hope I never play the same thing on stage in the same song every night. Um, it'll be, 
in the same song in the same key <laughs> but it might have a completely different mood depending on how i'm feeling you know so and i enjoy that otherwise people say well how can you go on stage and play the same show over i said it's not the same show yeah it's the same songs yep uh, but one song could be four minutes one night next night it might be nine you know i don't it depends where we're going you know and it's all spur of the moment it none nothing is nothing is prepared do you, do you give do you give the guys in the band the, the, the old hairy eyeball like i'm going to stretch this one out a, a bit or does that happen quite often yes yeah and they know they know to watch me and if i don't walk back to that microphone to sing the last verse they know we're still going yeah. <laughs> you know and i have phenomenal bands so you know i've always had tremendous players and so yeah i have to have people in the band that are ready to go anywhere at any time um because it's not that i forget the songs well maybe sometimes but no <laughs> uh, but but it's like i want to go on somewhere else and i might even i'm sometimes i might even look at them and go let's go to another chord and i'll i have a mic back by the drums that I have a foot pedal that I can turn it on and just talk to the band. So I could go over there and say, we're going again, or let's take it, let's modulate to G, you know, and that happens on the spur of the moment. Oh, wow. Know? And I love that. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's yeah. so dangerous. It's, that's what I live for, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like if you just, someone calls a song and you guys have never played it, but you know you all know that song and you're playing it together for the first time, this is just a, an example, and you nail it, and everyone goes, yeah, that was good. You guys have really rehearsed that. Nope, that was the first time. That's a, that's a magical moment. So I'm guessing that's the kind of moments that you're aiming for when you yeah, – Yeah. Yes. I mean, for, for, for argument's sake, even though it wasn't a solo, <clears throat> it was the track of um, Reckoner for, that's on – uh, Frampton forgets the words, the new instrumental record that you talked about. And um, uh, it's a, we all knew we'd bit off maybe a little bit more than we could chew. Um, or we thought, you know, it, and I love that because again, it's dangerous. And let's see if we can do this because it's my favorite song off that album in Rainbows. And um, so I thought I was a bit cheeky to even want to try and do it anyway so i said let's all learn it really get the chords down perfect and then we came in to the studio and we just uh we rehearsed the little tiny licks and stuff that were in there ahead of time and then we recorded the run through and the run through is the take yeah I was so proud of us Nice, <laughs> because the reason that it's, I think we're all just like anxious and we're just like our concentration level is so high <laughs> between, you know, and you could feel it, you know, and no one made a mistake. And we were just like floor. All of us were like, wow, we're, we're pretty good. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And I have to say that that's due to the fact that I had musicians in there that are just, you know, un unbelievably great players awesome. and intuitive. 
you have to be intuitive, you know. Yeah, yeah. And just know the right thing to play at the right time adds a skill. Yes, and I don't want to tell anybody what to play. I want them to play what comes to them when we're, when we're starting from scratch. And then once I've heard what they're doing, be it drums, bass, guitar, piano, whatever, I'll go, I love that, more of this, you know. I let, because I want to see what they bring to the song. I've written it, it's done, but it's like I want to hear what somebody else's ears here for this you know and i know because my band are all uh um very creative uh that you know they're gonna the reason they're in the band is because they bring something to to the music to the to to the songs yeah yeah peter what what age did you start actually playing in bands you said you started playing guitar at nine by what age were you playing in bands well the school band the little ravens was when i was 10 or 11 or maybe, maybe, maybe a little later, maybe like 12. <laughs> <laughs> but then, um, then I, uh, I was still at school. And I, when I was 14, that's when I recorded uh, with the, this band called The Preachers that were being uh, produced by Bill Wyman uh, because um Tony Chapman, our drummer, um, these guys were all older than me, but Tony Chapman, the drummer and leader of the band, was the original drummer of the Rolling Stones and introduced Bill to the Stones as the bass player. So, um, unfortunately, when he was replaced by Charlie a little later, Bill had been friends with Tony. They went to school together and everything. So I said, look, Tony, get a band together and I'll produce it. And, you know, we'll get Glenn Johns to engineer. And so I joined this band and it was a semi-pro band. We all worked. Well, I went to school. They all worked. And um, then we're in this this horrible Austin J2 van or whatever it was and rusty old thing. And we've left the front seat vacant as we drive through Penge. We pick up Bill Wyman, a rolling stone. And we're all in the back of the band, you know, sitting with the gear going, we've got a Rolling Stone on board. No way. So it was, <laughs> so up we go to the studio and we recorded what was to be the first um, first single, Hole in My Soul. And Bill was producing and um, Glenn actually did the next sessions, I think. But we did nearly a whole album, which is out there somewhere. Uh but uh, that was that was when I was, and then Bill, uh, because of being in the Stones, the Stones had um, been offered Ready Steady Go, our big big TV, one of the big TV shows, Friday night, six eight minutes past six, and um, every Friday night the weekend starts here, sort of thing, and the Stones took it over for one week, so all Stones all the time with their guests. And uh, Bill chose the preachers, us, as the guests. So we played live on this stone, on this uh, this Ready Steady Stones, with the Stones. That is so cool. <laughs> uh, uh, and I was only fourteen; I hadn't turned fifteen yet. So it was wild. That's amazing. Now, to be fourteen years old, 
working with Glyn Johns, no wonder you've got such a good ear for tone. Like you, you can't help but not absorb knowledge from people at that age, right? Do you think that's where oh, it started? I, where you started getting the, the the ear for tone? Yes, yeah. uh, yes. I uh, <clears throat> uh, well, his brother and Andrew Andy Johns was no slouch either. Uh, rest in peace, Andrew. But um, we we used humble pie used. Um, Andrew for the Andy for the first Pie album, and then we moved to couple first two. Then then the record company wanted us to use Glenn, so um, I had I had started off even before I met any engineers, <clears throat> reading up about and my dad telling me about Les Paul and uh, how he made, and then we would listen to his records with <clears throat> him and Mary Ford singing. And we'd listen to all these overdubbed guitars, and I just thought, "Oh my God, how is he doing that?" You know. So then I worked it out. He's going sound on sound. Well, I didn't realize he had the first. He invented the first multi-track machine. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time. But he started by going sound on sound, which is having two tape machines, and then playing the rhythm first on the one on the left playing it back and then playing the lead over the top or adding the bass and then going back to the other one. This, the sound gets worse and worse each time you go, yeah. but you can make a band that way. So I asked my parents, could I have, a, could I have another tape recorder? But you've got one tape recorder. I said, well, I know, but I, I need another one. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then I was upstairs making all these very bad sounding, you know, but the very first track would always sound so good, you know. I thought, if only I could make it sound like that at the end of the overdubbing. <laughs> but um, uh, in the end, obviously, I learned that, you know, you need multi-tracks and all that stuff, which, but I was a pretty much of a gadget freak before I met or any engineers. And, and as soon as I did, I became a sponge yeah. for sound. I mean, I, I know every different way of mic and drums, mic and guitars, mic and amps, mic and acoustics, mic and strings, brass, whatever, different mics and all that stuff. You know, that's that's my forte, you know. But I've, I've stolen it from Andy Johns, Glenn Johns, Chris Kimsey, uh, you know. From all the uh, greats. Chuck yeah. yeah uh, they, the list goes on, Eddie Kramer. The list goes on every engineer that I've ever worked with has taught me something, you know. That's awesome. So do you have your own studio now? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do, yes. I have. It's about 10 minutes from where I live. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a, a professional, you know, um, uh, studio that I bought. And then I, but I don't rent it out on a regular basis. I just, because then I have to deset all my stuff. But, but um I do rent it out to friends. I mean, Chris Kimsey's uh, coming in, I think, May or June um, to produce and engineer an album with Snuffy Walden, who is a phenomenal guitar player and wrote the music to West Wing and da 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 da, da. He's done so much stuff. So I'm going to, he's a good friend. And uh, so they're going to come in and I'm renting it to them. But it's basically for friends. Um, because it's it's more like a home studio, real studio, yeah. just the feel of it in there. But it's got the full, it's fully blown with big SSL and all the outboard gear and everything that I've collected over the years. 
And it sure accumulates, doesn't it? <laughs> it accumulates all the gear. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes. yes. Now, Peter, when you were a youngster and you were playing in the bands at 14, were you singing then? Or did singing come a bit later? You go, oh, I'm going to have a go out the front. Um, in The Preachers, they asked me, could I, could I, could, uh, could I sing uh, a couple of numbers to give Moon, uh, Peter Gosling, uh, we called him Moon, a, a, a break, you know, because he was singing everything. I said, absolutely. So I sang... Um, um, Hide Nor Hair by Ray Charles. Um, I can't remember what. Oh, um, one, two, three, one, two, three, da 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 da. Um, I can't remember who did that one. Um, and um, one, one other, um, one other song. I can't remember now, but yes. Um, so I did, um, I tell you what I did do, uh, like for a couple of shows, um, you know, when, uh, get off my cloud came out yeah. by the stone, yep. the mixed voice was mixed so long, so low that it, you couldn't understand a word he was singing yeah. until it got to, Hey, you get off my cloud. So I said at a rehearsal, I said, let's, let's try it. Let's try it. And I'm just going to sing it. So instead of singing the words, I went, you know, and because <laughs> that's what it sounded like yeah, to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, you get off. And we, we, we were playing for people to dance and doing covers and everything like that. And I remember when we did that one, um, the whole audience stopped dancing, turned around, and they were all in hysterics. <laughs> I, was, I was making a fool of myself. But self-deprecation is always good for the yeah. audience. Not the reaction you were hoping for the first time you were out in front, huh? <laughs> no, I, it was incredibly funny. I mean, the whole band, we were all laughing. It was a joke, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. So um, I believe you're in Humble Pie um, before you went solo, yeah? Yes. Uh, yeah. What, at what age did you start playing with them? Uh, we formed Humble Pie, Steve and I, in 1960, the end of 1968, very, very end. And um, we'd just done a session together, me and the Small Faces in France, in Paris for Johnny Halliday the French Elvis, and um, and we'd been there for a week. Glenn asked me to, that said Steve would like me to join, Steve Marriott would like me to join them, so I'd play some extra lead and stuff like that. And uh, so Glenn and Small Faces and myself went to Paris and recorded this, this album for Johnny Halliday. And um, that was, that was the, the first time we actually played for real together <clears throat> and I wanted to join small faces. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah. And I believe Steve did too. That that's the whole problem, but the others weren't into it. I can understand that. No, no biggie. And I, I was a little tall for them because they were all very small and, um, and I'm small too, but I wasn't small enough. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
So anyway, um, we get back to England and Steve calls me and said, I've just left the small faces. I said, oh no. I said, why? He said, I've had it. Because they wouldn't let me join the band, I guess. I don't know. Um, and um, so he said, can I join your band? Because he was helping me get a band together. I'd left the herd at that point. <clears throat> so we had Jerry Shirley on drums. And now Steve said, Greg Ridley from Spooky Tooth, who we'd played with many times, phenomenal band with Gary Wright in it. And, and uh, Greg was a phenomenal bass player. And I said, oh my God, yeah, what a band. Um, he said, well, you ready? I said, yeah. He said, and then he called me back after he said, I've got, I've got a, a bunch of names here. And the one that just hit me straight away was Humble Pie. I said, oh my God, that's good. Because they're going to think that after, tra after traffic, oh, sorry, after Blind Faith being called the first super group with Steve uh, Winwood and Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker and Rick Gretsch, um, we knew we were going to be called a super group. So Humble Pie, I think, was, was pretty apropos. Perfect. Perfect. Um, now, you've, you've played with some, some people, man, as well as your phenomenal, phenomenal success as a solo artist. Don't even have to bring that up. You played with Bowie? That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, my dad was his art teacher, um, and I, I went to the same school. So for a year... Um, Dave, Dave, myself, and George Underwood, who did the cover for Ziggy Stardust, who that was also in my dad's art class for three years, four years. Um, and um, so um, I got to meet Dave when I was 13, 12, 13, and we became friends uh, because we had music uh, as a commonality there. And I'm still... I still speak with George Underwood, who was David's best friend. They were the they were the two best friends for life, and um, and my dad uh, really respected them. And David and and George uh, really appreciated my dad. He was a good teacher, and uh, so uh, it wasn't. Uh, I, I hoped at one point I would end up playing with David. Um, but our career sort of when I was in the herd, he was doing his David Bowie in the lower third or David Jones and the Night Timers, all these early bands. And, and then finally, he comes out with um, uh, Space Oddity and Humble Pie has a package tour. Uh, the first tour changes 69 and we had David as our special guest. Cool. And um, so he just came out with a 12 string and no band just played played uh, oddity on the 12th string phenomenal so um we've our careers were going like this along and uh, uh and then of course you know things sort of took a downturn for me and i lost my musical credibility because of the teeny bopper thing that sort of happened which was very hard to control and i can't help the way i look or looked then <laughs> and uh, so david saw what was happening that i was i'd lost my cred you know and he was as pissed off about it as i was i think and um 
So he called me up in 86 and said, uh, I love what you just did on your latest album, which was called Premonition. And um, he said, can you come and do some of that guitar playing for me? So I, I, I think it was a nanosecond. Yep. And I said, <laughs> I said and I'm going, finally, finally, finally. So we're in the studio together. And then while we're there, he asked me to, would I play on the road with him? And I didn't realize what that meant or what that would mean to me. I was just thrilled to be a part of his tour, you know. And he, what he did was a terrific, gave me a terrific gift in as much as he took me around the world virtually twice, once in stadiums and once in arenas. Sorry, did you? No. Peter, if I can interrupt, I've lost your audio for a second for some reason. I've lost your audio. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Do you mind logging back, back out and back in again as you did before and see if that fixes it? Sorry about that, folks. I had a bit of a... Oh, no, you've muted yourself. I just saw that. He muted himself accidentally. We'll try that again. <laughs> The joys of technology. There he is. Now is that you're better? back. Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, I, I saw just before you hung up that you you had lost the audio. I could hear it. You muted that yourself. That delay again. There's a little. There's a little button that came up that said Peter has muted himself. It's like, oh, okay. I just no. saw that just as you went to log out. But sorry, we 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 were talking about. Um, being on the road with Bowie. Oh, there. I see. I could have just hit the mute button. Yeah, so yeah, I see. yeah. That's what it was. Okay. Okay. You want me to start that? What was the question? Um, I didn't lose too much of you. It's okay. You were just talking about being on the road with Bowie and going around twice. First time arenas, and then second time stadiums. Right. Let me let me say that again. So, the great thing was, once we'd done the album, David uh, in Switzerland, never let me down. Album. That's when David asked me if I would play on the road with him, be one of the guitar players, Carlos Alomar, being in the band for many years, a uh, phenomenal player, and to be uh, be the other guy. And uh, so I didn't realize what a gift that was he was giving me because he took me around the world twice, basically, once in stadiums and once in arenas, and reintroduced me as the guitar player. I didn't do any, I sang one verse or one chorus of uh, one song, that was about it. And I didn't even want to do background vocals. I just wanted to play guitar. That's great. And he understood. That is awesome. And uh, so um, that was it. And I didn't realize at the time how much that would change everything for me. Um, because it was kind of the thing, well, if Bowie likes him, I guess he's okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> There's that credibility one back, huh? That's awesome. Yes, it yeah. did. And I can never stop thanking him, and I, I keep thanking him. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
Peter, um, I, I know you're pressed for time, so I'm not going to keep you too long. I should throw to a few questions that people have put up. Otherwise, yeah. it will go past the hour that, that you asked me to keep it to. Um, let's see. Can you tell us that this is from Scott Shepard? Can you tell us the story about the Black Les Paul? Never gets old, my friend. And okay. Yeah, it's a ripper story. Ripper story. Uh, Scott, yes. Um, we were playing South America uh, in Ve uh, Caracas, Venezuela. <clears throat> and uh, we'd been to Buenos Aires in, uh, in Chile and all over. Um, <clears throat> and we were we'd flew back to um, Central America, um, to Panama, Noriega's Panama at the time. And uh, we had a day off. The gear traveled on a cargo plane, and unfortunately, it crashed on takeoff. So the plane was just a, enveloped in a huge ball of fire, and the tail had broken off. Um, and everyone thought that everything was burnt up. And But unfortunately, the guitars, some of the guitars were in the tail, and uh, scavengers came and took it, took them and sold them, you know. <clears throat> And uh, so, but I was told that they all went up in a, you know. So then 30 years later, that was 1980. So 30 years later, um, <clears throat> 2010, I get an email from a guy in Holland um, and he's got all these pictures of my guitar now. Little chewed up on the headstock <laughs> and a little, little crusty here and there, but um, it was 30 years older and a little little singed, but I said, oh, my God, that's my guitar. So uh, there's a gray area there that I can't go into, really. It ended up on this island, Cur Curacao. Um, uh, this player had bought it, put it in the closet, and then his son, 30 years later, got it out of the closet and said, Dad, I want to play this guitar teenager and and he said but it doesn't work <laughs> so can i take can i take it to a luthier so he took it to this luthier who as soon as the kid opened up the case he said he said to himself oh my god i know what this is and this is frampton's guitar so he said well leave it with me overnight i'll see if i can make it playable kid went away he came back well before the kid came back he took it apart took the pickups out, took the strings off, f forensically photographed it, and then um, sent them to his friend in Holland because Curaçao is a Dutch island. So that was the connection. And um, this guy said, that's Frampton's. And they said, oh, we know. <laughs> so they sent it to me, and I didn't want to say it was mine until I had my hands on it because yeah. I didn't want to pay a gazillion dollars to get it back if I was going to get it back. So it took about two years for the kid. Uh, when the kid came back in the following day, the guy said, the luthier said, you know whose guitar this is, don't you? Kid grabbed it and ran away. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So it took another two years for the kid to all of a sudden realize that he either had to have it mended or sell it and get it so he could get a new guitar that worked. So he came back to the luthier and he said, five grand, $5,000, it's yours. So they told me that. 
and but the luthier didn't want to pay the five thousand dollars himself because that would be buying stolen merchandise so he went to this is so wild he went to the minister of tourism of the island of curacao and asked the island to buy the guitar back for me wow (laughs) so they did minister of tourism and the luthier who happened to be his other job was an immigration inspector so it's all a bit of a gray area and then they finally come up to nashville and bring bring the guitar back but that was 32 years not 30 years and um i got it back the first i took it to gibson we dated it we we did all the you know, um, x-raying it or whatever, and they wrote down, you know, everything that it was. And I said, don't take away the the scars, but make it playable for me. So we were in the middle of doing the Frampton Comes Alive 35th tour, and uh, we were playing the Beacon for the second time in New York. And at one point in the act, just before Do You Feel, is when... I said, put the lights down. So I put the lights down. Then my tech in the dark brought out the Phoenix, we now call it, on a stand. And all all the Super Trooper spotlights just at one moment just hit the guitar. And the crowd went (laughs) apeshit. It was the guitar's night because they knew that I'd lost and they knew that it was found. They'd heard this, but they hadn't seen it yet. You know, so um, I, and I was so nervous. They were filming it for 60, not 60 minutes, but uh, CBS Sunday morning here in the U- U.S. And um, they asked me, Anthony asked me, um, the interviewer, so how do you feel about playing this guitar tonight? And I said, really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's more famous than I am now. Wow, wow. <laughs> you know. And um, so when we started Do You Feel, I messed up and played a wrong note. And luckily they edited that out of the CBS morning version. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I was nervous playing it, you know. And nerves make you... Dumb. Nerves will make you mess up the simplest of things. Oh, my God. How could you mess up the intro to Do You Feel? Yeah. yeah. Must have been a big moment. But just to be (laughs) reunited with that guitar would just be amazing because it means a lot to people. So I'm I'm good friends with a chap named Louis Shelton. I'm not sure if you know who that is. Um, Do you know the song Last Train to Clarksville by the – Yeah. Yeah. He plays the intro to that and – Big session oh. guy. He, he lives here, just around the corner from me. And his first guitar was a 1952 Telecaster, which I've made a video to put out there to say, if anyone sees has seen this guitar, please, Louis will just wants it back. Uh, right. If ever you're guitar shopping and you see a telly that's had an extra cutaway put into it, much like the Bloom, oh. Bloomfield telly, but with the Bigsby right. on it, Get in touch because that's Louis' guitar and he's been looking for that for a long time. Um, okay. And it m- would mean the world for him to get that back. So if anyone's watching and you see that guitar, please get in touch. There you go. Yeah. Peter, some other questions here. We, we talked about your behemoth rig. What do you play when you're just noodling around the house? Um, I have a John Sir amp 
um, that's just a little little head and little one one twelve cab open back, which I play at home. I also have a that's for the more overdriven stuff, and uh, for real clean stuff, I have a Princeton, a sixty five Princeton. Actually, I have two. I have one upstairs and one downstairs because um, <laughs> I love them so much. So, and I'll play my either my Phoenix or uh, I have two other guitars. My three favorite guitars are obviously the Phoenix because it means so much to me. Um, then I have a 1959 Red Cherry 335, which is on most of the old blues record and Frampton forgets the words. That's nearly on every track. Um, and then I have, uh, I've got a 1960 Les Paul Burst, which um, was owned by J.J. Kale. I so, have pictures uh, of those right here, actually, which I'm going to try and do a screen share of as you talk. No, and that didn't work. I hit the wrong button, but that's okay. Oh, there it is. No, it doesn't look as good as I thought. I'll get rid of that. Uh, <laughs> as you were. <laughs> so you play those guitars around the house then, huh? Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. I've got another question here from Scott Shepard. Who would you say is one of the best natural guitarists out there besides yourself? You had to throw in the besides yourself. Oh. Oh, gosh. There's, that's such a hard question, isn't it? There's so many good players out there. Larry Carlton. Larry Carlton. Um, Bill Frizzell. Um I'm trying to think. Well, no longer with us, Django Reinhardt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that man could play, he could play a thousand notes in a split second, but he's, he's the guy that I learned, you can find that one note that just goes through the whole chorus and it's, it just makes it, you know. He could play one note for as long as he wanted, and it was the right note at yeah. the right time. So, you know, I've never been a shredder. Uh, you know, that's not my MO. I never wanted to be. Um, I just want to play. I want to. I want to have a place for my feelings to come out, and that's what my playing is. I, I got to say, Peter, I saw something on TV a few years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, was it a Beatles induction into the Hall of Fame or something like that that you were in the house band in? What? Oh, it was the 50th anniversary of of the Beatles, I believe. Yeah. On CBS. And um, Luke, Steve Lukather, um, when they needed another guitarist and Steve uh, recommended me, thank goodness. That was wonderful of him. And, um, yeah, it was the two of us, basically. Yep. Um, your uh, sound was kicking and just your your touch and everything. I remember just going, man, is that the most underrated guitar player in the world right there? Peter Frampton. Wow. Listen. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I had so much I had so much fun doing that show because I it was basically Ringo asked me to do it because I've played on his records we've written together and he's been a friend since i was 
to, since 71. Um, and, and so originally it was just two little things that Ringo was doing. And then all of a sudden it ended up being this big show, the CBS, uh, show about, uh, about the Beatles and uh, all their music. And, uh, so <laughs> I got to play with all these people. Um, I have to say that playing, um, um, the Beatles song with Stevie Wonder. I can't remember which one it is now, but he's he's known for doing this one Beatles song, and everybody knows already, I'm sure. But and I'm I'm sta I've known Stevie for a long time too. So he played on um, my I'm a new record, played harmonica. But anyway, uh, so I'm standing about two point five feet from Stevie <laughs> uh, and I'm doing the Motown, you know, and those were the most important I've ever done in my life, Wow! you know, and, uh, and I, I just, and there were so many other John Legend I played with, um, so many other uh, players uh, that were on that show. And of course I played with Ringo, but, um, on that show, but it was an amazing thing to be invited to do that. Um, I love playing for other people. And as long as I, I love playing for other people, but I like playing with my own band for my own songs. Yeah. I don't like, I'm necessarily good at sitting in with other bands and doing my material, but sitting in with another band and being the hired gun is another very comfortable position for me. Yeah. So after all these years, is there anything about your own playing that you don't like? What's the one thing you don't like about your playing? Um, not much. Not much? You've come to it, <laughs> except the way you, that you play? I can't think. Of, I mean, I, I hate the fact that if I mess up when I'm in the middle of something, you know, um, I, I mean... Uh, this could open up a can of worms, but, and I do have to go soon, but, but uh, I have this um, muscle disease that is uh, called IBM, um, inclusion body myositis, and it affects uh, the arms, the hands, and my legs and feet. And what's happening is I'm losing power uh -huh. in those muscles. So it is starting to affect my hands a little. And so I know what the end game is. So I'm playing guitar as long as I can. I have to say that that annoys me. Uh, that's yeah. frustrating as when you go to do something you could do, but you can't do it now. You yeah. know, so that's a very frustrating thing for me. Yeah. I'm going to sneak in one more question. Now, yeah. a pretty famous lyric of yours is, there's a ringing in my ears. Has all the years of rock and roll taken its toll on your, ear, on your hearing? Do you, how is the hearing? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it took a long time. Um, but yes, it did. And I, I do have those little tiny, you can't see them. I don't have them in right now, but they're no good for music, but they're okay for talking yep. and listening to people talk. Because I'm fed up with going, what? So, um, <laughs> but um, 
Yes, uh, but a good story about this is, and I'll leave you with this, is that when I went to the audio ontologist, audio whatever it is. Audiologist. Um, audiologist. Audiologist. Thank you. Audiologist. And, um, and he was, he's the guy that always would mold our ears for the in-ears, the monitors, that I think actually took the final toll on me because you'd whack them up so loud. Yeah. We were destroying our hearing. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so he said, do you want me to give you a hearing test while you're here? I said, oh, sure. So he gave me this hearing test. He said, oh, well, you don't have as much loss as I thought. He said, but this is when it was first going. He said, but you... Uh, you do have a slight dip at like four or five k, which is, for layman's terms, it's the mid. Uh, the treble would be ten, twelve, fifteen k, and bass would be a hundred and fifty hertz down there. This is in the middle, so it's four to five k, four to five thousand, whatever's. And um, I said, oh, that's that's bad because. Those are good frequencies. He said, I know. He said, the only good thing about that is that those frequencies that you are missing are the frequencies that most women speak in. So I said, oh, that's good. <laughs> can, can I have a certificate? <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you ask for a certificate? <laughs> and I can bear out that theory because it's usually women that I can't hear. Yeah. <laughs> But you've got a valid excuse. You've got a valid excuse now. So I, I, my, I've absolutely taken out my left ear, and I know it was in my younger years, no hearing protection, <laughs> small little practice room four nights a week with a drummer cymbal right beside my head, and that's played havoc on this ear. And I've got permanent crickets in there. Bzzz, but yeah, it's bit of that myself. You got to feel that rock and roll, man. <laughs> you got to feel that rock that's and roll. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much for your time, mate. Um, I really appreciate it, especially sticking through um, some of the technical oh. glitches that we had at the start there. It's never a good way to start a conversation when you got... I know, but it's good. We, we didn't give up. No, a little, little bit of troubleshooting. We got there. So uh, yeah. thank you again. I got the... the... <laughs> Well, that's that's my studio audience back there. <laughs> oh, and the sun's coming up here. So, folks... Thank you so much. Like, subscribe, all that. <laughs> Peter's new album, Peter Forgets the Words. Brilliant, brilliant title, Peter Forgets the Words. And I just want to say it again. That gives me the same feeling as when I first started playing and my next-door neighbor, I'd only just started playing guitar, and my neighbor took me to see The Shadows, who were playing just down the road. This is me at 14 years old. And I bought uh, a tape full of uh, Hank playing cover tunes and listening to your... Um, your album just before gave me the same feeling then that the the touch and the notes so kudos to you sir oh great <laughs> yeah so much okay i hit the button which brings up my little end screen and it goes something like this thank you <laughs>